It would be a great help if you opened up Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're starting to look at over the next coming weeks. We've just sung, haven't we, a prayer. We've asked God to speak to us. That's what we're longing for as we come to his word. It's what he's promised he will do by the power of his spirit. As we come to the scriptures, he would speak into our hearts. And so that's what we're hoping is going to happen. And actually, we can be confident that's going to happen because God has promised it. Now, I wonder if we walked out, say, uh, on the fringes of the London Marathon today or out into the shopping streets of Chessington and we said, what do you think Christianity is about, what people would say? Or they might say something about, well, it's going to church, isn't it? Or someone is bound to mention the Ten Commandments. They always get raised when you ask what a Christian is. Perhaps they'd say it's something about being a good person. Is it about British values? Is that what Christianity is about? Perhaps they'd think it's, well, it's instead of out-of-date religious rules and, and ritual. What about you? Well, when you think about your Christian life, if you're here today and you are a Christian, what, what does it make you think about? A set of meetings that you have to go to? A set of demands that are a little bit inconvenient at times? A set of people that you actually enjoy hanging out with and love? What do you think about as you think about your Christian life? Well, as Mark starts his account of the gospel, the good news, he wants us to be absolutely clear of one very simple thing. And I think it's a profound truth. In fact, I think this is maybe the most profound truth that that Christians get wrong in the Christian life. It's very simple. Have a look down with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark doesn't say, look, I've got a manual here. It'll help you run your church. He doesn't say, look, this is how you can lead a better life. This this is the book of happiness. He says, no, this is a good news, literally, of Jesus. Here, Here is the one thing that if you grasp over the next say about 12 weeks that we go through Mark, the one thing that I think will transform your Christian life. It's about Christ. It is all about him. He is the good news. Now, names are important, aren't they? In our culture, we we name people for all sorts of things, maybe after our favorite sports star, maybe take our granny's name, Uh, The General Registry Office has some advice for you if you're going to be a parent on choosing a name. It says that names should consist of a sequence of letters. That's that's the only thing they have to be, a sequence of letters, and should not be offensive. Apart from that, you can choose whatever you want. In Sweden, they actually have a list of approved names. But here, as long as they're letters in some sort of order and it's not offensive, that can be the name. It's rather lovely. So Elias, many of you will know, means the Lord is my God. It's the Greek version of the name Elijah. Yahweh is my God. So I guess that's what Dave and Claire are praying for Elias. As he grows up, that would be the truth. The Lord is my God in his life. And Jesus is a name. And it means the Lord saves. See, when God sends a man, he he ran into history, uh, the man who is his son, he gives him a name to, to tell us why he's come. The Lord saves. And Jesus was flesh and blood like you and me, but he was totally unlike you and me because the next thing Mark says is this is the Messiah, the Christ. That's not actually a a name, it's a title. This is my anointed one, my rescuer, my king. 
that's what God is saying Jesus is. See, now the Son of God, well, the Son of God was the the one, the title given to to some kings in in the Old Testament. But when Mark says here that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, he he actually appears to be saying more than that. Because as we read on in Mark's Gospel, we'll see that Jesus is the divine Son, the Son of God, his Father. Those are the vast claims we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. That this man, Jesus, in history is good news because he is God's anointed rescuing king. He is the divine son of God come to earth that we might know him. And as we go through Mark's gospel, halfway through in chapter 8 and verse 29, his first followers will finally get that and he'll say to them, who do you say I am? And Peter will say, you are the Messiah. And then at the end of Mark, in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, as this man hangs on a cross, the pagan who's in charge of his execution squad will will look up and look at the way he dies and say, surely this man was the son of God. That's where Mark's taking us. And he's going to stack up evidence to prove those outrageous claims. And we're going to see them this morning, the beginning of that evidence. And there are three simple things that we're going to look at. They're actually summarized in Chapter 1 and verse 15, here's the first thing we need to see. The time has come. The time has come. Mark shows us that by the way that he speaks in in verse 2, because he takes quotes from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. It's a common technique that had been used of the day. Mark actually takes two Old Testament quotes and shoves them together. The first is from Malachi chapter 3.1. A promise in Malachi that the Lord himself would come down to his people. But before he came, he'd send a messenger to prepare them. And then from Isaiah 40, those verses that Gareth read at the start of our service together, where the prophet says, a voice is going to call in the wilderness, calling comfort to God's people. Comfort because the Lord himself is going to come, so prepare the way for him. He's coming in sovereign power to rule. He's coming as the tender shepherd who gathers up his lambs, who gathers up his people and and holds them close to his heart. The Lord is coming. Get ready. Now, I used to teach at a a posh school, and uh, once upon a time, the queen came to visit. What do you do when royalty... When royalty turns up, how do you get ready? Well, at our school, what we did was we built a new toilet. So, um, because you can't have, can you, can't have Her Royal Highness sitting on, you know, the toilet that some inaccurate boy has used in the past. So you build a specially new royal toilet. After, after she'd been to visit, that was, and after she'd been, that royal toilet, it was easily the most popular toilet amongst the staff. The pristine royal toilet. You prepare when royalty is coming. Well, these, these Jews who, who John the Baptist is speaking to, they've been waiting, not, not for a few months for the queen to arrive, they've been waiting 450 years since God last spoke to them through the prophet Malachi, since he said, the Lord is going to come. I mean, they are looking for signs. When is the Lord coming? Is the messenger here And then we read verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There is a voice in the wilderness. Repent. The Lord is coming. That's the way you you get ready to to meet God. That's the way you prepare to meet your maker. You, You turn from any way you've rejected him, any way you've rejected his laws. I mean, that's the only sensible thing to do, isn't it, if you're going to meet the God who knows you, is, is to admit everything that you've done that he could possibly be disappointed with. Because after all, he knows it already. You can't pretend with God. So John says, the Lord is coming. Get ready. Turn from everything he might not like in your life. And verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. It's a very successful ministry. These people are gagging for rescue. They're oppressed by the Roman superpower that controls their land. They're longing for something better than what they have. A lot of John's popularity actually came from the way he dressed. Did you see that down in verse 6? John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, you might think well, that's a bit of a strange way to dress, and I don't know why Mark's put it in there. You know, perhaps he's just doing a bit of a filler. But that's not the way Mark works in his gospel. Everything he says has a purpose. And if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 8, some men go out to meet one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah. And the king says, what did he look like, that bloke you met? And we read, they replied he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt round his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. And then when we get to the end of the Old Testament... And God says, I'm going to come in sovereign power to judge and to rule. But before I do, I'm going to send someone. We read in Malachi 4.5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. You see, when, when John goes out into the desert, he could have looked around in his dressing up box and got out his Moses outfit. He could have picked out, oh, I'd like to dress up as a priest today. Maybe I'll be Spider-Man. But he doesn't. He picks out the Elijah outfit for a very simple purpose. This is the one, the messenger, who God has chosen to prepare the way before the Lord comes to his people. Now, one of the tragedies about many of the disasters that happen in our world is is that very often there's been evidence beforehand that, that it's quite likely. I mean, do you remember, say, Hurricane Katrina that devastated New Orleans back in 2005? And one of the tragedies afterwards was that they had a number of reports by scientists that said it'll only take a relatively small hurricane to ensure that New Orleans is totally flattened by a flood. But but they ignored the warning. And the results were tragic. Over 1,200 people died. Now the question, as John preaches, the Lord is coming, get ready, is will people heed the warning? Will they recognize the Messiah when he comes? Because John's absolutely clear. He says, I'm not the main event. No, no, you want to be ready for the one who's coming after me. Look what he says in verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes the one who, more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
the, the tying of someone's sandal straps wasn't even a job you give your slave in Hebrew culture. John is saying here, I'm not even worthy to be this guy's slave. He deserves all the all glory and all the honor because he has all the power. I can call you to change, says John. I, I can give you a nice washing on the outside that, that lines up with, with your desire to be different, baptism by water, but this guy, when he comes, he's going to change you on the inside. He's going to pour God's presence into your heart. The Holy Spirit will be yours. Baptism by the Spirit. Now, now, we're very good at keeping up appearances, aren't we? Uh, we often present our best to people. We, we can tidy up, clean up the house before they come round. But here's the problem. We can't clean up our hearts. Or we can apply the makeup, but we can't cover up the cracks in our lives. We can put on the glad rags, but we can't clothe ourselves with genuine love for God and for people. And John says, look, you need to get ready. And we go, I want to get ready. I want to get ready, but I just can't change my heart. And John says, there's a heart changer coming. He'll give you God's spirit. And the question for us is, do we see our need of the heart changer? I mean, are you like me this week? You've had a day when you thought, I just long that I'd be someone else. Do you see that we need a heart changer? And do you see that that heart changer is the only hope of our world? That that actually only God coming to us could could in any way make us in the people that we should be, let alone the people that, that we want to be. Because John is saying, now the time has come. The Lord is coming. The heart changer is here. The one who will bring you God's presence personally and intimately. The one who the whole Old Testament spoke about. The one who you have been waiting for. The time has come, says John. Theresa May's announcement on Tuesday caught us a bit by surprise, didn't it? Apparently caught lots of people by surprise. She'd only told about four people. I went to uh, Preston on the train, and by the time I came back, we were having a general election. On June the 8th, we will vote. That day is set. And so everything's changed, hasn't it, in the political life of our country. Suddenly politicians, they all want us to vote for them. They're they're out campaigning. The the clock is running. Well, John the Baptist is saying, look, everything's going to change. The time has come. The, The clock of salvation is running. I'm here to prepare the way because the Lord is coming and you need to get ready to meet him. He's the one that you're going to be spending eternity with. He's the one you're going to be thinking about when your jobs and your pensions and your gardens and your houses and your holidays, they've all gone from your minds. John says the Lord is coming. The time has come. And then look what Mark does. I love the way he does this. At that time, Jesus came. Just in case you're slow. Eight verses on. The Lord is coming. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And here's the second thing. The kingdom of God is near. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Why? Because God's king is here. At that time, Jesus came. Because the one who all those promises are yes in. At that time, Jesus came. Some of those promises from the Old Testament spoke about a man. Some of those promises from the Old Testament seem to speak about God himself walking the earth. 
Now, I was uh, reading an article this week in a magazine about Prince Charles. Uh, apparently, our next king is quite particular about what he eats, to the extent that if he came to stay at your house, even if you had a personal chef, as some of you do have, some of you call them your wife, but if you had another personal chef, he will bring his own personal chef with him. He also likes martini, but not just any martini. He has a special bottle of martini carried around in a suitcase with him in the car. Charles's martini. Apparently, he's a very demanding sort of man. You know, he likes things the way he wants because, I mean, he is going to be our king. But the king of kings, when he comes, he is actually not very demanding at all. He doesn't stand aloof from his people and say, your food is not good enough for me and neither is your martini. He, he comes intimately amongst his people. Jesus, he comes from Nazareth in Galilee. That's a nowhere town in a backward part of the country. If you're in the urban elite of Jerusalem, you thought Nazareth was for those yokels up north. They're all a bit thick in Nazareth. That's, that's what they're like in Nazareth. What does he do? Well, he wouldn't have just done an interview on Radio 1, Jesus. No, he walked the streets with the lowly and the rejected. He, he gets baptized. Do you see that in verse 9? He identifies with his people. Oh, he doesn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He, he never does anything wrong in his life. You can read that in Mark's gospel. But, but he wants to identify with his people. And what does he receive as a baptism gift? Not a, not a silver tankard or a new Bible. No, he receives warm words of congratulation from his Father in heaven and the gift of the Spirit poured out upon him. Look at verse 10 with me. This is how we know the kingdom is near. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Literally, God rips apart the entrance to his presence and the Spirit comes out on Jesus, down upon Jesus. Why? Well, because again, in the Old Testament, when God's king came, the prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 11, you'll recognize him because the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and power, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then to confirm his identity, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The words of the Father. And again, he speaks the Old Testament. You are my son. Are words taken from Psalm 2, where in the Old Testament God says that he will install a king to rule over all nations. The king before which all people will tremble. And Psalm 2 verse 7 says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. You're my son, whom I love, or literally, my beloved. That's, that's what our Father in heaven sends. He sends his best. He sends his one and only. He sends his most precious gift, his beloved son. Quite often we, we talk about grace, don't we? God's grace to us, his undeserved loving gift to us. But, but grace isn't just an idea. Grace is a person. The most precious, beloved son of God. Jesus is the gift. I was thinking about this morning what, 
what's the biggest thing I'd be willing to give to help someone else? A bit of money, probably. A bit. Maybe, you know, use of my house. I lend people my car, occasionally. But what are my children? I can confidently say to you now, however much I love you, I will never give you one of my children. However great your need, please just don't bother coming to ask. You are my son, whom I love, my beloved one. And he sends him to suffer, because that phrase at the end, with you I am well pleased, is actually quoting Isaiah 42 verse 1, where God is talking about not a son, but a servant, not a king who will rule, but one who will suffer. Isaiah 42 to 53 are called in the Bible the servant songs, the suffering servant songs, as God talks about one who will come to die to bear the punishment of his people. You are the king. You are my son. And you are my most precious loved one. And I'm pleased with you because I'm sending you to suffer. And... Straight away, Jesus' mission begins. At verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attempted him, tempted him, attended him. You see, straight away, the Spirit that clothes the Son sends him out into battle, because that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to confront and to conquer evil. In the Old Testament, God's people, the Israelites, wandered for 40 years through the desert being tested by God. Could they be obedient? Could they heck? But now one comes who is a man who is tested for 40 days in the desert, and he's perfectly obedient. You see, he is the one who's going to be fit to suffer for his people. The sinless one who will bear our sin. Because we'll see Jesus finally bring in his kingdom, finally defeat the devil at the end of Mark's gospel. We'll see him alone and deserted again when we see him hanging on a cross. That's where the mission of the divine Messiah will lead. Now, now with a general election, there are all sorts of promises going around, aren't there? They're offering hope. They're telling us they've got the answer. So we've had the Tories in the last 24 hours tell us lower taxes. They're the party of low taxes. So Labour are trumping them today by saying more holidays. You can have four extra bank holidays if you vote for us. Yeah? Everyone is telling you they've, they've got the answer. You want soft Brexit. You want hard Brexit. Just vote for us and your life will be better. And what we think is, oh, I'll opt for one. I'm not sure they make much difference, but I'm going to vote for one. And I think we can treat Jesus a bit like that. We can think, oh, I've got a choice to make. I think I'll go with Jesus. He'll make my life better. But Jesus is not like a political party. He is the Lord's King. He is the beloved Son of God. He is the only suffering servant. And his mission is not sort of just to get our lives better back on the road to to offer us a bit of advice on how to live God's way. Now, his mission is to come and rule and to rescue us. That's what we're going to see him do in Mark's gospel. He's going to rule with authority. As we walk through Mark, we'll see him have total authority in creation over sickness, 
over, over disease, over nature, over death. And he will rescue from evil and sin. Mark is saying, this one here, he is the one who is life and death. And Jesus' credentials are, are faultless. He has impeccable references. God the Father says, no, this is my son. And the Lord keeps every word of his manifesto in Christ. Every promise he's made is, is yes in him. Jesus is the king. The kingdom of God has drawn near. And so as we end, the question for all of us is if the time has come, and if the kingdom of God has drawn near, is will we acknowledge Jesus as our king? Do we acknowledge Jesus is our king. Because here's the third thing. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. In verse 14, John the Baptist is put into prison. That's a sign that there's opposition to come. You see, the Lord's come to see his people, but not all of them are very happy to see him. But as John the Baptist is put into prison, Jesus begins his ministry. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. You see, when this Messiah, this king comes, his methods of conquest are slightly odd. He's not a warrior, a soldier. He's not even primarily a, a massive miracle doer. Oh yes, Jesus does wonderful, powerful miracles. But, but primarily, Jesus is a preacher. God has only one son And he makes him a preacher. He proclaims a message. And the message is this in verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near because as we've seen, Jesus, the king is here. The kingdom of God's not a place, a place you can go to. It's God's rule. God's rule of his people through his king, Jesus. To be in God's kingdom is to know the king of love, Jesus Christ, and to follow him. And the amazing thing is, you don't have to strain or labor for that. It's not something that you strive to achieve. It's not something that you even have to search and find. The kingdom comes near. You see, the Lord God himself... The one who's been rejected by rebellious humanity comes in total humility so we might know him. He comes close to us. He draws near to us. He is not far away. He comes near. And as a result, you must respond. Oh, the good news always demands a response. See, Jesus didn't come just to provide us information about God. He came to demand allegiance from rebellious subjects. Repent and believe. Following Jesus always involves change and commitment. Now, repent is actually a word that means turning around. So, So we're living our life for ourselves, where we call the shots, where we decide what is right and wrong, where we are at the center. And we turn from that to Christ. We turn to to the one who gives us life, the the one who knows what's best for us, the one who's not just at the center of our lives, but but the center of the whole of creation. Turn to me, says Jesus. Believe I am the good news, that I will come as 
God's king and save my people once and for all. That I'll bring a kingdom that lasts forever. That's the good news Mark's going to outline. Now, one of the reasons people died in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina was that even after the hurricane came, as the rescue boats came in, as the waters were rising, they wouldn't leave their homes. They wouldn't leave the things that they, they found so precious in life, their property and possessions. And in the end, that cost many people their lives. And many people hear this, this call of Jesus, and they refuse to turn. They refuse to turn from their lives, the lives they're living now, lives that inevitably are not working, to cling to the one who is good news, to the loving, beloved Son of God. They'd rather cling on to what they've got, reject his rule, and risk meeting God in judgment. But Jesus says, no, the time has come. Now is the hour of salvation. Now is the opportunity to come to me. The promise still stands. So can I ask, first of all, if you're someone here this morning who's not yet a Christian, if you're someone who doesn't yet follow the Lord Jesus Christ, can I urge you to consider who he is and why he came? There's no actual better book probably in the Bible to do it than Mark's Gospel. Just keep turning up over the Sundays to come and look at Mark, because Mark has written his Gospel to answer those questions for you. If you wanted to add to your exploration, there's probably nothing better to do than go on our Life Explored course in May. Because what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ is saying, now is the offer to know me, not just today, but forever. And what about for the majority of us here who'd who'd say that, yeah, I'm a Christian. I I follow Jesus. Well, just three applications as we start Mark's Gospel together. Repent. So I think so often we can say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But actually, sometimes we, we, we don't actually repent. You see, repent and believe is not just how we start the Christian life. Oh, yeah, I repented and believed in 1954 at Haringey with Billy Graham, and I, I've followed Jesus ever since. Repent and believe is the shape of the Christian life. It's constantly turning from saying, I'm going to call the shots in my life to Jesus. You are my loving and my good king. I want to follow you. See, it's very easy to turn Jesus into a sideline for our lives, to make the Christian life about what I want from him. But, but we, Jesus wasn't created for us. We were created for him. And if we won't have him as king, then we actually won't have him at all. And you'll know if you have repented and if you are repenting, if you ask yourself this question, who has dominated your plans for next week? Who's been at the heart of your thinking as you plan next week? The person of Jesus Christ? Then he is your king. Is he the one in the workplace you want to honor? Is he the one in your family you want to honor? Is he the one in your relationships you want to honor? Are you looking to him? Here's the second application. Believe the good news. This, that Jesus is the good news. 
See, I, I think so often we can say, oh, yeah, no, I need to repent, and I need to follow Jesus and try harder. And we don't actually look to Jesus. And that's not good news, is it? Turn from living my own way and try harder to be a better person. That's not good news because I can't change my own heart. And that's not what Jesus says. He says, repent and believe the good news. He is the good news. Look to him. Gaze upon him. Draw near to him. He is the king who's come to rescue you. He is the beloved son who will suffer and die at the cross for you. He is the one who totally forgives and totally restores. He is the good news. Come to him. So this week, why not each day just set aside two minutes to thank God for Jesus? Pick one aspect of his character. Maybe one thing from Mark 1 and say... Thank you, Father in heaven, that you fulfilled all your promises in Jesus. Help me, to, help me to remember that today. Well, thank you, Father in heaven, that you've given me your, your most precious thing, your beloved son. Thank you, you treasure me enough to give him for me today. Or, or thank you, Father in heaven, that the suffering servant has come and he took upon himself all my sin. And bore it at the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Put him at the forefront of your thinking. Believe the good news. He is the good news. And here's the last, last thing for us as we finish. The time has come. As Mark starts his gospel, as Jesus begins his ministry, he, he says, now is the hour of salvation. Now is the day when all God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. Do you know why today exists? The only reason that today exists is so that people can repent and believe the good news. That's the only reason today exists in history. If we weren't in a day of salvation, if we weren't in a day of people turning to Jesus as good news, do you know what we'd be on? We'd be on Judgment Day. Or we'd be in the new creation forever. And it's nice this morning, but I'm hoping more for the new creation. It's a day to repent and believe the good news. And therefore, will we be people about that? Will we be people who, knowing that the time has come, are willing to share Jesus with others? Not, not to invite them to church. Please do invite them to church. It would be lovely to see them here. But to invite them to Jesus. Will we pray for them? that God might open their eyes that they see Jesus? Will we go to them? Will we invite them to Jesus? Maybe you could bring someone to this series on Mark. Maybe you could think about bringing someone to our, our Life Explored course. Why? Because the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's have a, a moment's quiet together.